This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I don't know about you, but I turn my station computer off every night, mainly to save energy. You wouldn't think that the decision to turn your computer off or leave it on would be controversial, but of course it is. People have been arguing about this for decades now. On one side, you have those like me who hope to save a few pennies in their electric bills. Also, turning off your computer clears the memory, stopping any tasks that are eating up RAM. A shutdown can also cure peripheral and maybe even some hardware issues. On the other hand, there are those who contend that turning your computer on and off subjects the components to inrush currents and voltage spikes that could be damaging. So who's right? Well, there's a lot of truth on both sides of the argument, but research appears to come down on the side of switching off your PC, at least occasionally. Recent studies have recommended that you shut down your computer at least once a week for the reasons I've already mentioned. There's also the fact that your computer is full of moving parts. Its CPU, essentially the brain of the mechanism, has its own fan after all. High-end graphics cards also need their own cooling system, so they have fans. And although solid-state drives are becoming more popular... Most PCs still use hard disk drives, and they consist, of course, of spinning disks. All of these components wear down over time, and the longer you keep your computer running, the shorter their lifespans will be. It's easy to fall into the habit of leaving your computer on to avoid having to go through the boot-up process, but many have come to believe that it will help you get more life out of your machine if you turn it off. If you're stepping away for a few hours or would rather not completely shut things down, you can always put your PC down for a nap, so to speak, by using its sleep mode. The sleep mode puts your computer into a low power state. The fans will stop spinning and the hard drives will stop functioning, so things really will get quiet. With sleep mode, your computer's current state stays in memory. This means when you wake up your machine, all of your open apps, documents, music, etc. will be right where you left them. In Windows, you'll find the Sleep Mode settings in Control Panel under Power Options. Just look for the text that reads, Choose what the power buttons do. Next to the line that you see that reads, When I press the power button, select Sleep and then Save Changes. If you're only using a laptop, select Choose what closing the lid does. And next to that, click When I close the lid, select sleep, and then of course save those changes. When you're ready to make your PC sleep, press the power button on your desktop or laptop, or just close your laptop's lid. On most PCs, you can resume working by pressing your PC's power button. Now, not all PCs are the same, though. You might be able to wake it up by pressing any key on the keyboard. Mine is kind of that way. Clicking a mouse button will do it, too, or just opening the lid on a laptop. So check the manual that came with your computer or go to your manufacturer's website. It takes less time to wake up a computer than it does to turn it on after a shutdown, but sleep mode does still consume power. 
Not very much. If you want to clear out bugs, memory leeches, non-functioning network connections, and a lot more, a complete reboot and shutdown's the way to go. I'm on the telephone with Dr. Brian Callahan, AD2BA at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Steve. How are you? Good, good. You have a really interesting article that was published in the May-June 2021 issue of QEX magazine. The title is a bit of a mouthful, but I'll, I'll rattle it off here. It's Protocol for Formatting and Transmitting Binary Data over Morse CW. Did I get that right? You did, and I apologize for the mouthful of the article. If I had come up with a catchier name, I would have. <laughs> well, Here's the first challenge. Can you describe what it is at a basic fundamental level? Sure. Um, and I guess to to do that, let's back up a little bit and just kind of think about where I was coming from at the time. So when I was writing this article, I was still a pretty new ham. I'd only gotten my license in July of 2020. And it coincided with me both learning CW with the Long Island CW Club and me getting my first QEX magazine in the mail, which had an article describing FT4 and FT8. And I thought, all this stuff is great. You know, that article is one of those articles that no matter how much you did or didn't understand about it, you come away smarter than, than you began. And I figured to myself, I could do that, except I need to, for my own edifice, do it at a much smaller scale. Um, so through learning CW, and I was already working with some retrocomputing stuff, thinking about the ways that data was transmitted, let's say via cassette um, in the 1980s, I thought, how could we bring all these things together? Bring together kind of 80s data transmission with my learning of CW, with the really cool stuff I had just read about, about FT4 and FT8, um, and come up with a way that the average everyday ham can use CW for something other than just sending words back and forth to each other. And so in this case, it would be sending any kind of computer data computer data you might want uh, between stations. That's the goal of, of this article. Now, if I read your article correctly, Dr. Callahan, uh, and I might be going too simplistic here, but it looks like hex characters are being assigned to specific CW characters? Is that right? Yes, that's uh, what I was thinking. So one of the things that is just true about CW is the numbers, 0 through 9, are some of the most expensive characters to send if you're thinking about how much time it actually takes to send each character. Right, 0 being the worst-case scenario, right? That would be 5 DAWs, right? That's kind of the longest character that you can send in terms of the letters and the numbers. And unfortunately, zero and one and two, et cetera, um, appear quite often in computer code, unfortunately for us. So I was thinking, how could we, to save the, the hands of the poor operators who may be sending this binary data, um, just shave some time off their transmission times? And so, yes, so I was trying to map um, characters that have a really short amount of time to send, things like E, I, T, to those hexadecimal characters that would hopefully appear the most often in their transmissions to help cut down on the amount of time needed to actually send their data. Okay, well, that makes sense. In a hypothetical, Dr. Callahan, say that uh, I have a short binary file 
that I'm attempting to send to you via CW? How would this work? So there's a couple of ways this can work. And I left the arrangement for how those two stations um, actually connect to each other up to the operators. Um, So in my mind, I was thinking this could be a really interesting addition to what would otherwise be a normal CW system, right? So I or you send out CQ, CQ, CQ. The other station responds to that CQ. We send our, our information to each other. And then you say, hey, I have this, this interesting bit of data I would like to send to you. Um, would you like to receive it? And I can say yes. I can say go ahead and send it. And then you can go ahead and send that entire transmission. And then once you're done sending that data transmission, we're still in the middle of that QSO. So we can still say, you know, goodbye. Thanks for the file. I got the file. I didn't get the file. Can you send it? Or anything else that we might want to say to each other before disconnecting. So I tried to design it in a way that it could be its own standalone transmission, if you so choose, or it could be part of a larger conversation between two stations. Of course, the operator at the other end of the contact, I assume, is then going to have to transcribe the CW characters that he or she received back to hexadecimal, correct? Yes. And so in the article, I talk about how you may want to have computer-aided translation, as that will hopefully make your life a whole lot easier. Um, But computer-aided translation is not a requirement to use the protocol. So in the article itself, it has that table of what I have mapped, the different hexadecimal characters to their CW characters. And you can just use that table and reverse the process from what you've received from the sending station. Of course, like I mentioned, if you have a computer, the computer can hopefully do it a whole lot quicker than a human can. But it's certainly not a necessity to get that original data back. Having a computer do it would, I would think, perhaps cut down on the propensity for errors to crop up due to sending, receiving, and so on. Yeah, so I was listening to some of your earlier podcasts, and I think it's episode nine, I want to say. You you begin with a short intro on uh, CW computerized text translators, right? And so computers that can listen to the CW and then transcribe whatever it is that they hear. And you mentioned that... Um, humans, at least for now, will always be better than than the machines, um, right, due to a lot of factors, right, due to the fact that CW can be noisy, due to the fact that um, the human operators on either side can get sloppy, right, et cetera. And so hopefully this is a little bit of a, a kick for people who are looking to work on that kind of software to think about how they can improve it. Um, but yes, computers would... Um, both be very, very helpful for sending and receiving. And also computers could send much, much more quickly than than humans can, right? You think about um, humans, what do we max out at in terms of, of WPM, right? I max out at about 10 words per minute. I assume you know, a real professional can get 40, 50, 60, right? Somewhere in that vicinity. Uh, that's certainly a lot better than 10, but that certainly is nowhere near as good as the speed that computers can send those dits and DAWs. And then, of course, receive those dits and DAWs. And so I'm also thinking about in that protocol, right, it's fun to be able to send binary data by hand. Uh, but I'm really thinking about the use case where 
we say hello to each other through a standard QSO. We both have our little uh, computers that can send and receive Morse code. And those two computers know how fast each one is sending. And they know kind of all the timing requirements between each station. And then the computer can just quickly fire off what it needs to fire off. It can get received by the receiving computer and then very quickly just translate it back out to the original data. So again, computers will definitely help speed up um, and help reduce errors by, by a lot. Um, but if you wanted to, to take the, the hand approach, there is an opportunity there to, to have the hand approach. Before the advent of Joe Taylor's WSJTX software, and I don't know if you were aware of this, Dr. Callahan, but uh, meteor scatter communications uh, were conducted actually with high-speed CW, typically on the order of uh, a couple of hundred words per minute. Then the operators would copy these signals and then slow them down and you know extract <laughs> with their eyes, so to speak, the the information that was actually in the contact. So I would think, in theory, again, if you have two computers doing this the CW could perhaps again get up into the hundreds of words per minute? I think you're right. I did some kind of back of the napkin calculations as I was devising the protocol. And I think I came up with a number that in perfect ideal conditions, and I was using numbers I think I had gotten from a video on how the U.S. Navy was using Morse code between ships using lights. Um, you can get up to a couple, maybe like 2,000 words per minute. Again, in totally ideal um, conditions. Wow, 2,000 words a minute. Well, that brings up a question that I was going to spring at you earlier, but uh, <laughs> have uh, have you attempted this yourself yet? I mean, a, a real-life test of this? I've only attempted it in my own house, uh, kind of across the room from uh, from the other stations. I do have um, a couple of friends who are working on unrelated CW software, mostly CW trainers for themselves, and they have expressed interest in incorporating this protocol into their software. So my hope is in the next couple of months, somebody else will have done the really hard work of incorporating the protocol into some software. And then those friends and I can set up our antennas and beam each other uh, data messages and, and see what happens. In your article, you briefly touch on the issue of error correction. And do you see that as the protocol develops being something that could be incorporated? I, I don't know how, like a checksum type of thing or forward error correction of some type? Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this when I was developing the protocol. So in the article, as you read through it, you'll see very clearly that it's based off of two earlier um, ways of sending binary data that come from the 80s, both the Intel hex record format and the Motorola S record format. And both of them come with what we would call basic today error correction. And I did incorporate that. I did bring that into um, the CW protocol that I developed. So that at the tail end of each record, there is a single byte that is a checksum of all of the bytes that came before it. Um, I took the math straight out of the Intel hex record checksum calculation which is you add up kind of everything that came before and you invert it, you turn it, you turn it negative and 
you cap it to a number that's 255 or less. Um, kind of one of the difficulties in terms of error correction here is, as you'd mentioned in that in that previous um, episode of Eclectic Tech, right? CW can be noisy. CW, unfortunately, can be um, sloppy. It can fade in and out. And so, right, one in average... A one out of 256 chance that that you've detected an error is maybe not great. It's better than nothing. Um, the protocol does have the ability for the receiving station to say, hey, um, I got some of the records. I'm either iffy on some of these other records or I know for a fact I definitely got some of these records wrong. I'm going to send you back a list of the records that I, I don't 100% know that I have correct. Could you please send those back? Um, and the protocol actually has for basically unlimited numbers of that unsureness, send back a list of records and then have the sending station send back those records. So even if you don't get it all right the first time, um, you can sit there, you can go back, you can work with the station until the receiving end is pretty sure that they have everything correct. Now, because I was thinking about humans sending these things back and forth as well, right? I like... I, I kind of romanticize that idea of humans being able to send binary data. Yes, of course, um, as we mentioned, computers would do it a lot quicker, but I think there's something nice about still allowing for humans to send back and forth. Um, if you know for a fact that both of your stations are human and not computer, you can choose to omit that checksum at the tail end of each and every record. Now, that totally eliminates uh, kind of automatic error detection, but it doesn't mean that the receiving station is unaware of the fact that they may have gotten records wrong. Like think of ourselves as we write down what we hear over right over the wire. Every once in a while you say, oh, I'm not sure about that letter. Oh, there was a word that came in that I just missed because I wasn't paying attention to it. Um, and so the human can still detect whether or not they got those records correct and can still have the opportunity to send back a list of records they're not sure about and receive them back from the sending station. Um, one of the things that I would like to further work on, as you mentioned, um, is more robust error detection. Um, I guess my thought at the time was, let's get something out there. Let's get something out there that I can be sure, um, at least at a very baseline level, works. And then we as a community, or me as myself, can always go back. We can always add to this protocol, right? We can always send more articles along to QEX for, for publication about extending this protocol. Um, kind of one of the things that even attracted me to ham radio in the first place was this idea of nothing needs to be necessarily complete. We always have the ability to experiment. And because of that, nothing has to be set in stone. So my thought process for this article was, Let's get a baseline out that I can be pretty sure works. And then from that point forward, all the things that we've identified that we want to build upon, let's work together and build upon those things. I hope you'll send more articles to QEX as this develops. I would really be interested in seeing how it works out. That's my goal. I've had lots of other um, hams write into me since publication of that article. Um, both giving me critiques on the baseline protocol, which has been very helpful, which I've already begun incorporating into a follow-up article. And then just other people asking questions like, hey, uh, I read your article, super interesting. Have you 
have you done any more work on it? I'm looking forward to seeing what what comes next. So I I must say I've been very grateful to all the hams that have written into me. Um, it has given me kind of much encouragement to to continue on working with this. And my hope is whenever this protocol is, from my perspective, finished, we have a collection of articles that the beginner who wants to go into protocol development themselves can use as a starting point to say, okay, this is how I can get started. I don't have to replicate exactly what is here, but if I'm thinking about thinking about how we communicate with each other and the ways that we encode our messages, the ways that we transmit our messages in ways that are different than has come before. This can work as a good starting point for kind of the tricks and the gotchas and the things that might not seem immediately evident when you first set off to develop a communications protocol, right? I would love for there to be more people who are smarter than me who could develop the next FT4 and FT8. Um, but I also understand that, like me, you have to start somewhere. And so my hope is that these articles kind of fill that niche for people who are looking to experiment in communication protocols and don't know where to begin. This is fascinating stuff, Doctor. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech. Produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.